If you're ready to take action to create the life and business you want and be surrounded by courageous, like-minded warriors, entrepreneurs, creatives, and professional freelancers supporting each other and feeling the fear and doing it anyway, I invite you to join my free online community, Momentum Warriors. Just head over to www.momentumwarriors.com now. You're listening to Transitions Podcast. Learn how to make money doing what you love, become more confident, create a positive impact, and have the lifestyle that you want with marketing consultant and small business advisor, Anthony Chansamuth. Welcome to Transitions Podcast. This is Anthony Chansamuth, and I have with me today Jim Shields, who is from Twist and Shout Communications. Jim, you're the director, I believe. UK creative director. So um, does that mean you have bases everywhere in other places or? Yeah, no, we have a creative director in Dallas, Texas. Oh, also. fantastic. Okay. That's a weird print, but you know, it yeah, works. Love it. I'm going to, we'll find out all about how that happens in a moment. So uh, as explained in, in, in the communications I've had with you so far, this, this podcast is all about helping creatives uh, really you know, uh, evolve their businesses, really take what, they, what they're passionate about in the world um, and, and make a living out of it. Um, and, and it's a very real, I guess, uh, reflection upon you know, your own experience. And, and that's why I really wanted to talk to you because you've got a couple of things going on, like a lot of creatives do. Um, you know, you've got certainly Twist and Shout. You've also published and, and released a book called Three Guys Walk Into a Bar, How to Thrive as a Creative Business, um, which is really fast. I'm really happy that you've done that. Um, and we'll go into some of the content in that book in a moment. So can we start by just sort of rewinding the clock and going back to maybe when you were in school, you know? Um, and that might have been wow. like 10 years ago or something, right? Uh, I don't miss <laughs> uh, <laughs> That was a long time ago. Yeah, we were scratching things on slate tablets. <laughs> there you back go. Then. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so uh, <laughs> did you grow up in, in which part of Were you always in the UK? Is that that's sort of your background? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was born in the UK. I was born in Manchester, uh, which is in the north. Uh, and as a, as a northerner, we're known for this sort of gritty determinism, uh, you know, determinism. We have this determination and uh, we sort of have a no-nonsense sort of reputation as well, a no-ball zone. So, um, yeah, growing up in Manchester was interesting. I had quite a kind of, uh, I guess what you'd call a blue-collar upbringing, pretty working class, nothing special. Uh, I did manage to get into a good school just through, um, at the time we had a test called the 11 plus, which meant that you could, you know, get through to a, a decent secondary school. Um, and really, I guess I was just a relatively average kid, to be honest. Um, although I got to the usual shenanigans, I didn't really find my feet until I was about 15 when by accident, I joined a theater company. How does one accidentally join a theater company? Okay, so I'm out with a friend of mine who was already in the theatre company. Uh, uh, he was my uh, best friend at the time. And uh, we were messing around. And he, I dared him to do something, and he, he broke his ankle. Uh, and his mother was so furious with us that she made me take his place in the show. <laughs> and so you're like the, the immediate stand-in. Jim, you're in. Yeah, with zero experience and three weeks to go to the show. Uh, and and to this day, the opening music to that show makes me need to pee. 
what was that song? Was that the Beatles? What do you, what was that piece for the? <laughs> oh, that that piece was it. The, the musical was called Carousel. It's an old traditional American musical by Rodgers right. and Hammerstein. And, and uh, yeah, the opening carousel, the carousel waltz, as it's known, is a big overture. And if I hear that music, I mean, the pan, the sheer abject panic, that was the most visceral thing I'd ever felt in my life up until that moment. And that was a life-changing experience for me because up until that point, I'd had nothing to do with the theatre. I'd had nothing to do with the arts, uh, with performing or anything like that. And, um, and that that's what rescued me. That's what really kind of uh, opened the door and turned the light on for me. Um, and the um, and, and it was a great show. Uh, I mean, I you know I, I barely remember. I was just in the chorus. There was no part or anything. But I had to learn like eleven songs and eleven dances in three weeks, and uh, oh this gosh. was ridiculous. Oh yeah, terrifying. terrifying. And um, and and the, the the theater company took me in as its own and kind of adopted me, and they were fantastic. And that was uh, All Saints Theater Company in um, in Salford in Manchester, and. After that, that was a turning point for me because after that point, I started meeting creative people all the time. So, you know, actors, directors, writers. And I must have done like, I don't know, three shows a year for the next 10 years. I was hooked. I was crazy into theater. And then at that, around about that time, it was time to start thinking about what I wanted to do as a career. And I was um, crazy into photography. And the theater side and the photography side kind of collided because I managed to get um, a job with a film company. And after that, there was really no other job for me than All right, direct. so there are a couple of things that you, you've sort of touched on there, which I'd like to go a bit deeper on. Before you were, you know, serendipi- serendipitously, how do I say that word? Serendipitously, oh my gosh, I'm terrible today. Um, close. So before you were, you were dragged into a theatre performance, what was going through your mind? You were 15 and you, you know, you obviously, you were, you were raised and, you know, born and raised in, in Manchester. What was, I guess, what was the climate like around that time? Oh, I mean, Manchester's famous for being wet all the time. I mean, not quite monsoon stuff, but, you know, um, we're not known for our glorious summers. And so, you know, it was, it was fairly cool. I would say if you've ever been to Portland, Oregon, about the same. So, you know. I guess I was referring more to that time when you were you, you were there, and, and, and was it was it uh, is Manchester known for the creatives? Is that is that a hub for creativity? It's an interesting phenomenon, actually, that I have come across since, where you get the kind of the second or third biggest city uh, kind of fighting harder to make itself known. So there's a more authentic kind of vibe. We don't have uh, an assumed success in the arts. We have to fight for it. So to drag the talent up north to, to perform in theatres, to, to get the right directors, to get that scene going, we, I, felt, I felt it was a very vital time. Um, and, you know, I mean, I was, uh, we, we were lucky because there's, there's a huge amount of talent come out of Manchester. But the, I remember helping out doing lighting and sound as a geeky, young kind of 14-year-old um, a tiny little theatre in Salford called the Salford Playhouse Theatre. Um, and Ben Kingsley is on stage. So, you know, famous actor, played the Mandarin in one of the recent Marvel movies. And so he, you know, to have, to have grown up in that environment was pretty cool. I did have, I was surrounded by talented people and I had a great mentor as well, a man called George Smith, who again, 
taught me that the performing wasn't just about stepping onto a stage and being loved by everybody. It was, there was more to it than that. There was a, a truth to it. And so he introduced me to the subject of semiotics, which is kind of the science of decoding symbols and, and signs and indexes. So this idea that you can look at uh, everything from a movie to a TV show to an ad, and you can decode it. You can make sense of it. You can go, why does that work or why doesn't it work? And because I was interested in filmmaking and photography and all that kind of thing, I was very keen to work out uh, some way of notifying, some way of decoding what was going on so that I could understand how to recreate it, um, if that makes sense. I realize we've jumped straight into it. No, I love deep. it. I, I love No, it's fantastic, Jim. I love that you've gone there. Uh, and I guess how do you train yourself um, to be so observant and to really find that, that truth that you speak of? Oh, getting involved with actors. I think there's no other way to say it. I'm at my happiest when I'm in the room and I have actors in front of the camera. Or at the time, that was uh, actors uh, with actors on stage or in a workshop or a rehearsal. Um, it's in the room with you. Um, it's visceral. And you instinctively know we're trained from being babies uh, to read faces and to read body language. It's one of the first skills we develop. And you just know when somebody's being authentic with a performance. You, it's kind of like when you know deep down in your bones whether somebody's telling the truth or not. Um, you know, often you can kind of tell, you just sort of know or you get a vibe about somebody. And, you know, that connection is important um, for survival. The, um, the, the way to develop that skill is to expose yourself to that environment as often as you can, to work with people, um, even on, on a more business level, like networking, put yourself out there. If you're, for example, you know, developing a career as a speaker, the, the way to do it is to get out there and do it. When I start, started my sort of comedy career about 15 years ago, um, I was, it was brutal. I would just you know, get up there. I would sign up for as many open mic gigs as I could find, and, and some of them were pretty awful. Um, uh, but you find out in the moment what works. Tell me about the yeah. The, I, I love those examples. Tell me about the first time you got up on the stage and did an open mic in a comedy club or in a that. <laughs> how did that happen? And was it a friend pushing you to do that, or did you just decide I'm going to go and give comedy a, a, a shot? Well, um, at the time, um, I was running the business and I was writing a course for executives on how to present because I realised it's one of the core skills that they need, and I kind of stumbled across. A way of working in an interview with, um, I don't know if you know the British comedian Eddie Izzard. Yes. Um, he, uh, he talked about the stream of consciousness thing and about how stories just connect with each other. We're, we're hardwired to sort of remember stories. We're not hardwired to remember a bullet list of things or a, or a bunch of data. And so when you, um, when you hear a story, your brain is naturally disposed to remembering it because it's a structure we've grown up with. Um, you know, years, you know, decades and, and generations ago before we had IT uh, or any way even of writing anything down, our, our parents would tell us stories to keep us safe. They would say, don't go into the woods. There are witches and bears and goblins, you know, so don't go into the woods on your own. You know, OK, stay with mum and dad. Um, and we would pass those down on to our children. And so the story became the framework on which we could store important information like, you know, don't get eaten. Um, and so that, that structure has stayed with us 
through generations. And now the idea of teaching executives to use stories is fairly commonplace. But 15 years ago, it was just coming into its own. So I was researching that course and I understood that the connection between how comedians develop an act is, is very similar. They build a story out. And um, I went on a stand-up comedy course for 13 weeks. It was a, like one night a week for 13 weeks. And what they didn't tell you was that on the 13th week, they were going to let the public in. They were going to open the doors and, and people would come down. But they left that little gem until the very last Yeah, week. you wouldn't have signed on if you knew that. <laughs> oh, no, we'd all be ill. We'd all be ill that week, you know. So, um, and so the idea is that, um, as, uh, and, and another interesting thing about my way of working particularly was every week we'd be given a topic and then we'd have to write some material about that topic, come back the week after and perform it. Well, with me, I, I was busy, I was running a business and I was, I'm just dreadful at kind of deadlines and things like that. And so what happened was uh, my tutor said, listen, I'm just going to let you get on stage and just talk. Uh, and I'm going to give you the subject matter on the way to the stage. You don't get you don't get any writing time because if you're going to miss homework, then you don't get the luxury of preparing your material. And that seemed to work better for me. And um, I mean, I mean, right now I'm a member of a couple of improv groups. Um, one's called the Same Faces, which is based in Leicester, where I live. And, and and that that really for me is what I've been missing all along. This kind of idea of, of just thinking on the hoof making stories up on the spot, that, that as a skill has helped me enormously as well. So that's how the comedy started. It was uh, research for a course. And then since then, I've done, you know, hundreds of gigs, um, varying degrees of success. But, you know, I've, I've, I know what it's like to keep a whole room full of people captivated for 20 minutes. Um, it's a nice feeling uh, to make the whole room full of strangers laugh and snort, and snort you know, uh, drinks down their noses. You know, it, it's a good feeling. Yeah. Is there any truth to, to the statement that, that comedians, particularly comedians, have a dark side to them? Oh, big, yeah. I'm a lot, uh, I don't know whether, I mean, I probably do. I'm not that aware of it. But um, I meet a lot of comedians who are quite, uh, who do have a dark side. Everyone thinks that, you, you know, you guys are hanging out backstage or whatever. It's going to be hilarious. You're all really funny. And you do get the odd comedian. I think I was probably that guy who tried to make other comedians laugh and got nowhere, you know, because uh, they know that's what you're trying to do. You're testing the material on them, and sometimes they don't appreciate it. But um, this idea that um, there is often a dark side, and there's an awful lot, actually, of, of mental health issues amongst the c comedy community. Uh, it's kind of an... Un it's not really talked about very much, but I think it's uh, certainly something that go goes on. It's um, something I became aware of. And But with myself, I think I'm more of the kind of nervous guy that has to make the room love him a little bit. You know, I want to fill the room with warm water and make everybody feel great. My instincts are to do that. And, and that comes probably comes from a, an insecurity from my childhood. But uh, a shrink could have a, a sort of field day with me. I'm pretty you sure. probably have a field day with the shrink as well. <laughs> with your improv, it works both ways. All right. So, so I'm going to just uh, read out an excerpt, which is from your book. Sure. I hope I can remember writing it. <laughs> uh, who knows how many shots of gin you know was involved in the process, if any? A lot of brain cells were killed in making. <laughs> uh, well, actually, whilst we're on that topic, how long did it take you uh, from conception of I'm going to write a book to actually having that come out and be published and, and released to the world? 
Well, the, the, presenta- the book came out of a presentation that I was giving to lo- lots of creative groups at the time. And that was called Three Guys Walking to a Bar. It, it was a, a PowerPoint that I was presenting on, on kind of a career path for freelancers. And um, I, did, I knew there was a book there. And for a couple of years, I've kind of sat on it. And we think of a million things to do other than write the book. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that I'm really bad with homework and deadlines and things. Ever since school, I was really bad. I was the kid that was up Sunday night at 1030 starting his homework for the Monday morning, you know, so um, I needed real discipline. So um, I was at an event about three years ago called the World Domination Summit in Portland, uh, Oregon, and I met a a publisher called Angela Loria. uh, And I'd, I'd actually just pitched my book to a group full of creatives in the bar in the hotel, which is one of those like micro meetups that you can get going at these events. Uh, and they and I just said, be honest, put your hand up if you, you would buy this book. And everybody did. And then I said, put your hand down, be honest. And really, I need research. Don't just be nice because I bought you a drink. You know, who's going to who's gonna buy the book? And they all put their hand up again. And then somebody in the uh, audience got up and said, tell you what, why don't you come to next year's event and bring the book with you? Nice. And they kind of put, yeah, but they put me on the spot, right, in front of everybody. There's, there's like 30 people here. And they're all like, oh, that's a good idea, Jim. Yeah, why don't you put up, you know? So <laughs> I kind of went, yeah, well, okay, yeah. Let's do that then. <laughs> so I'd come. <laughs> now I've got to write the thing, you know. And um, uh, that lady came up to me afterwards and said, hey, listen, I think I can help. Um, she gave me a card and she runs a book coach kind of service. It's a very, it's a brilliant service. It's, um, it's called Author Incubator. And so what she does is she puts you in a group of like 10 other authors who are trying to write and she puts you through a boot camp essentially over three months. And I signed up for the next boot camp, which was early the following year and did it in three months. So it was, it was brutal. It was the busiest time of my entire life. I was traveling, speaking around Northern Europe and I wrote the book on the go. I wrote the book traveling. And you're also a daddy. So I am a dad, yeah, and a lot of my inspiration comes from my kids. They're amazing. So uh, I love that. Um, so how do you? How do you? Okay, so let's go back to the excerpt, and then I've, I've just got all my questions there. Um, so in this, in this is this is on your website. So you talk about the story you share of Sam. Is it Kinson, um, who's a comedian? Oh, Kinson, yeah, who's, who's yeah, a comedian yeah. working in New York. And you talk about yeah, basically just a, it's his story. Um, and there's one part of it that I want to touch on, which is where it's okay. This is what it says. It says, "Don't get me wrong; it's not all gone away." Um, so he's talking about his his um, experience of uh, really great moments early on in his career as a, doing professional photography. Um, and he talks about you know there were many moments like this in my early career as a film cameraman. As I progressed via assistant director and then finally as a director, I had or have the best job in the world, telling great stories, using cool toys and working with amazingly talented and committed, committed crews and talent. So a lot of people listening to this would, would definitely associate with that experience and you certainly have as a director and as a performer. Um, and then he goes on to say, so how come my life 10 years later is filled with tax forms, meetings, form filling, <laughs> rental agreements, bank applications and other stuff I thought only ordinary people do? 
Yeah, exactly. That's not fair. That's not Absolutely. what I Absolutely. So, so let's talk about that and, and, and let, let's, uh, let's talk about your experience with that. How, 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 how do you merge creativity, this thing that you've kind of, you know, latched onto early on uh, as a child, you know, as a young performer um, and, and then, you know, and you're doing three shows a year, every year for the next 10 years and then you get into creating a business around your creative talents um, and then sort of juggling with this whole admin side of it which is really not fun at all um and i think that's a part that a lot of creative people i've spoken to really struggle with um and and, and you know and you, you asked that question really nicely you said you know i didn't sign on for this so so how have you resolved that within yourself and been able to work through that sure well it's um it's a good really good part of the book actually and a good part of my philosophy is that you you can be distracted distracted through the business of doing business and once you realize that what you can do is commercial if you're for example if you're a photographer or a graphic designer or a web guy or whatever it might be um at some point you're going to have to invoice somebody and at some point you're going to have to track what you're spending and at some point you're going to have to think about where your money comes from and what you should invest in in terms of i don't know equipment or computers or whatever you need to do your job and those sorts of decisions, you need information to do that. So you have to have some kind of a system. And inevitably, that system is dull. It's accounting. You know, I know, no offense to any accountants. I'm sure there are parts of accounting that can be viscerally exciting. I haven't found any. <laughs> but, you know, uh, but, you know um, and, and I think the trick is to, first of all, um, surround yourself with people who can give you help and advice. And that's why I, I mean, at the time I set up the business, I mean, my business next year will be 25 years old as a film. Uh, and, uh, at the, you know, when I started my business, we didn't have co-working spaces. We didn't have creative networking groups. We didn't have any of that. And now they're coming out of the woodwork. There's, there's one near you. So make use of that group. Make use of that kind of hive mentality and get the received wisdom of the group and use that to make better decisions. The other thing is to, you know, pay a small amount of money to have somebody do some of that for you. They're better at it than you. They'll do it quicker than you and more accurately than you. And you don't want to do it anyway. So if, if there's any motivation to make a little bit of money, that should be it, that you could pay somebody else to do the stuff that you don't want to do or can't do. Um, and so the, this idea that you are distracted with growth. I want to talk about growth for a second. Because I have, I have an, I, you know, we're hell bent on growth. I mean, it's kind of, I want to say it's an American thing, but it, you do see it everywhere else. The idea that you're not succeeding if you're not growing. And I actually don't, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with the definition of growth sometimes, which is I need more people, more premises, more and more business to feed that need. Um, the, the growth thing for me is, an, is not, a logical step for a creative because by its definition you can't always cookie cutter what you do you have limited wins there's only so many days in the week and once your diary is full it's full you can't make any more money so the idea about growth is um why would you want to take on dozens of people and surround yourself with an overhead that then just puts pressure on you to earn a ridiculous amount of money to support that you then become the business. You should become about throughput rather than creativity. Uh, we've, you know, I know lots of people who've been there. I've been there. And it's really tough because you just feel this pressure to 
perform and to create business and to desperately get that job across the line and to pitch that client and make sure it lands. And you can't help but sacrifice some of your soul in doing that because you really, really need the money to pay for the overhead. Now, for me, um, I really feel strongly that if we just pull in our borders a little bit and say, look, I don't need that amount of money to live happily. My happiness does not come from money alone. My, you know, money is a means to just pay the bills and, and keep a roof over my head. If you have a relatively modest lifestyle, then you can hit that number much easier every month to be able to pay the bills. And that allows you, that takes the pressure off to allow you to be creative. And then weirdly, the money will kind of take look after itself. Because if you are truly spending time on building the business and looking at your creativity and looking at your um, problem solving, then clients will be drawn to you and, and will see the talent and will see the effectiveness of what you're trying to do. Um, instead of you just simply saying yes to any piece of business that comes through the door. And so that's the important thing. The lesson I've learned over the years is if you don't need so much, you don't have to make so much and you can spend time doing what you absolutely love doing. Um, and so set your sights reasonably and then get help with the dull stuff. Don't feel you have to do everything. And there's a sweet spot where you're making just enough money to get the help and just enough money to cover your overhead and you have time in the week to go to a meetup, to go to an art gallery, to go and meet some other creatives and, and feed your creative beast, as it were. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and I, you've touched on some really key points there, particularly for creatives and, and in the creative space. Uh, one sort of nugget, if you will, that I pulled from what you've just said is this concept of um, certainly you don't need all this growth um, and the concept of, of business growth and the narrative around that, particularly if you're reading, uh, you know, entrepreneur magazines and business magazines and watching, you know, news and whatever else, there's certainly a, a strong narrative. And you're right, a lot of it is, is you know, US centric, um, is around this, you know, you've got to be growing to be succeeding. And, and I'm, I'm with you on that. That, that's, that's actually, that to me is a myth. Uh, and it doesn't apply to all types of businesses. The, the second one you had there was around feeding the creative beast. And I think that one, that's, uh, that's such a powerful statement because, um, you know, people like us, I mean, and, and I've kind of sort of landed on this insight in the last couple of years where, you know, for me, um, it, it took me two years to launch this podcast, right? Because it was like yeah. I had the concept. People kept saying to me, you know, you're pretty good at interviewing people. Why don't you do that as a thing? Why don't you, you know, um, make that actually happen? And I recorded about 10 or 15 interviews and none of them were released until literally two weeks ago. Um, and, and that's, I think there, there's a part of me and I, and I can see this with other creatives that I've spoken to where they, you strive for perfection in your art. And, and and you and you hold yourself back because you worry. Well, you know, if it's not good enough for me, it's not good enough for the rest of the world. Um, uh, and I and 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 you know, there's that that's something I see. It stops people. Um, and then there's another part where it, it's about you touched on it earlier about finding the commercial value in what you do. So I'm gonna sort of take you back 25 years ago to, you know, to, to the, the beginnings of, of, of the business. Um, how were you able to navigate and really find out where, where you could 
make money from from your creative ability? Like, was that an e- easy thing, or, or did you have to like go through many iterations before you could you, you kind of landed on actually this this actually is where it is? Um, it's a good question, actually, and it's not. It, there wasn't a kind of um, life changing moment where that all dawned on me. It was something that emerged over time. Uh, there are two things I'll say that I learned that helped me with that enormously. One was working out what it was I really enjoyed doing. And I've been in business 15 years, but uh, sorry, I've been in business 25 years, but 15 years ago, the comedy thing really started to take off. And as we made little kind of comedy snippets here and there, it became a thing. And over the following five years, we realized that this, hey, this is something we're good at. Not many other people are doing comedy and we seem to be okay at it. And it's quite a risky thing to do for businesses. So they're going to want some comfort in an expert. So we started to specialize. That's vitally important. Uh, we used to be like a lot of other production companies, kind of a general practitioner. And we would say, yes, we do that. We do documentaries. We do comedies. We do dramas. We do uh, anything, you know, like we'll just do anything. <laughs> Commercials, corporates, you name it. Uh, because to get the job through the door was the important thing, right? And that's what a lot of hungry young creatives think. Uh, and that's okay to begin with because you do need experience. But there comes a point where you've got to stop saying yes to everything because some projects just sap your life force and, and you know, start to eat your soul. And because they're not terribly creative, you're getting told what to do by the client. The client is the 800-pound gorilla in the room. And you need them. So it, it, it's, it's a master-slave relationship. It's not healthy. And the second thing that I realized was important was that you could grade your clients. You could actually say no. You could actually decide to apply some kind of metrics to whether or not you were going to do that job or not. And we have a thing at Twist and Shout called the four Fs. And I only hope I can remember all of them now. Um, the, the first one is finance. Is there money in this job? Uh, the reason I say that is that you need to be clear that it's a profit-making job first off or not. You can still do a job for free. But you need to know that up front. You need to know what you're getting out of it other than money, if that is the case. So the first F is finance. Am I going to make a margin? The second F is future. Is there more work where this came from? Is this client likely to be a repeat customer? The third one is fame. Am I likely to be so creative on this job? Is the client going to give me some some free reign so that I can really show what I can do. And, you know, there may be, I might win an award. I might put it in for an award or something like that. Something that would get me a, a really good reputation in the industry. And finally, fun. I mean, hell, you know, we could all just go and sell insurance if we don't care about that. So we have to absolutely understand that it, we're going to enjoy this job. This is, our, this is what I signed up for. And so the sort of finance, future, fame, and fun, the four Fs get kind of a, a score a scorecard. And if you don't hit a certain number, then you don't do the job. You can do a job for free if it's the most creative thing you've ever done and it's the best one you've ever had. You see how it works. So you have to get a, a high average. If you don't get that high average, it means that two or three of those items are not scoring well and you should walk away. Yeah, I, I really love that technique. And I've got a, a similar uh, ideal client identifier cheat sheet that I've created, which basically covers three of the four that you've talked about. And, and I think that that's, that's so valuable to be able to, just in your mind, be able to quickly ascertain and compare projects and say, you know, these ones work for me and these ones probably don't. And then I do have the choice then if I do want to go ahead with those, but I realized what I'm getting myself into. Uh, and then I think that's, that's super valuable. I'm glad you shared that. Yeah, and you can say, you can also, 
look at what you want, what do I want to get more of? You can actively go after a certain type of project. You can say, where do the, where, who needs these projects? What problem, what problem are we solving for these particular types of clients? And let's go after that community because these days they're a community. You can find them. And that's the great thing about, you know, where we are now with social media is that they're not that hard to find. So how important, speaking of community, how important was it for you in, in the early days to really sort of narrow down or niche? You talked about humor and, and, and you'd certainly use that in Twist and Shout. Um, and, and that's probably what stands out when, when I was looking through the work that you, you've done um, as a company. I, I think that certainly is, you know, um, some of those, those uh, ad, ad pieces that you've done are just hilarious but i think that that works comedy in advertising i mean we've seen it in in, in you know award-winning campaigns and, and 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 what else and you were you were talking about back you know 10 15 years ago that was a new thing now it's yeah. common but back then you were kind of like pioneering that in some way so so how did you how did you have those conversations with with those those clients in the early days and, and say well you know it's actually going to be good for you to make fun of your thing <laughs> How did that, yeah? First of all, clients are risk averse. They're terrified of getting it wrong. And with good reason. It could be expensive. It could be embarrassing. Comedy is one of those things that, you know, people could take the wrong way or you could offend somebody. And so clients understandably shy away. Or worse still, they do this kind of sanitized comedy that isn't really very funny. They, I call it dad dancing. You know, I have a 13-year-old daughter now. And, you know, I go to pick her up from the, the, the school disco and I'm like, hey, I know this one. And I start to boogie, you know, and she's like, you are, you are dead to me. <laughs> you know? I love it. Security, the strange guy here, you know, can you get rid of him? Um, and, and, and so uh, the clients sometimes do that. They'll go, hey, I've had a great idea for a joke or for a way we could do this. And you have to smile politely and go, yeah, okay, but comedy's not your job. Um, you know, not really. And, and we, what we need you to do is tell us what the problem is. Don't tell us what to do about the problem. That's our bit. And that's another mistake that a lot of creatives make. They let clients dictate what they do. That's crazy. <clears throat> that's like going to the doctor and saying, hey, doc, I need my appendix out. If you could just start putting away, that would be great. And the doctor's like, don't you want me to examine you first? Says, no, no, off you go. I'm pretty sure it's my appendix. Yeah, no, I've already, I've already Googled no. that one. <laughs> Um, so the, the so the idea is that um, with the comedy and clients trusting you, is that you you have, you have to build up a body of work that supports that, and so you can you know if you're lucky early on you'll get a few wins that that will support your argument that comedy is a great way of punching through the noise of marketing for your clients. Everyone's I, I work in the tech sector, and frankly, a 17-inch rack mount router looks the same as another guy's 17-inch rack mount router. It's not a very sexy product. So we're looking for the bit that is the differentiator, and then we make the comedy about a world that does not have that. And so that's, that's the way we position the client service or product. Um, and I kind of drifted off the question a little bit probably, but I'm, I just think once you know your niche, it's easier to differentiate. And if you really concentrate on, on feeding that niche, feeding that uh, creative edge, um, you will find your audience much better when they go, oh, you know the comedy guys, right, okay, that's great. Um, we were thinking about taking a chance, but we found a specialist. And when you become a specialist, um, it's easier to be clear about what the expectation is. And also, you'll find that the client is less likely to interfere. Because go, well, you're the boss. You, you've done this before. And you'll get a little bit more creative. Freedom. And I think something that, that comes up, and I, I've 
in conversations I've had with, with some creators around this particular topic is there's a, there's a fear around being niched. There's a fear around being, okay, I'm the person that does just comedy. Um, because the concern here is that, well, if I, if I put myself out there in that way, then I don't get to really experiment, experiment with other types of mediums or forms or different types of, um, you know, maybe I want to do some projects that are not comedy. Um, you know, and, and, and how do I then uh, position that to potential clients or, or whatever it may be um, if, if I'm branded in one, you know, in one area? Um, so, and I think I don't agree that that's actually a limitation at all. I actually think if, if you're known for, for one thing um, and you build enough of a, an audience or, 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 a, or a, you know, a following um, and then you can actually go through the evolution of, of transitioning to something new, not everyone's going to follow you, but, but certainly you have a reputation of there's other elements to your work that will stand out and they will believe in you and support you. What are your thoughts around that? Is there, did you ever have a dad experience? Yeah, I understand that fear. I understand the fear that if, you're, if you focus down too closely that you might not find enough work. Um, these days, again, with the internet and social media, it's the opposite. Special, specialism will save your business. I have no doubt. And also, if you're worried that you think, well, do I really want to be doing this all the time? Well, the point is, have you found what it is you're good at and you love? And why wouldn't you? Because within that genre or within that specialty, there are a billion ways to paint that. There's still a huge horizon of creativity that you can explore within that. Just in comedy, I mean, it sounds like we've specialized. We haven't really. Comedy is huge. There's musical comedy. There's black comedy. There's a million different types of joke that could be made and you know it doesn't have to be the same style the whole time um we found a little bit of a kind of magic formula but we we break outside that from time to time and we push it all the time um and you have to just ask yourself the question if if i'm looking around at looking for something else and i'm worried that i, I feel like i might want to do something else then maybe i'm at an early stage in my development where i haven't decided yet really what my specialty is and, that, and, and I would work towards that goal. I would keep looking around, what do I really, when am I at my happiest? And then do that. You know, what was it? Dolly Parton once said, you know, find what it is you love doing and then do the heck out of it. You know? I, I think it's an interesting question to ask that, you know, oh, you specialize, don't you feel bad that you're not doing other things? Well, not if what you specialize in is what you love. No, it doesn't occur to me to look at other things. I know I like this more. And until I find something else, and maybe, you know, I look and go, oh, you know what, music is really what I love doing. That's what I should be doing. Then I'll, I'll start doing that as a, as a sideline, as a hobby, and develop that, and then maybe make the leap later. There's nothing to say that you don't have to do that, as long as it's a decision that you've made, and it's not something that's just, you know, you're being knocked sideways by something a client needs or something else. Yeah, I, I, I really resonate with that and I feel that um, you make the decisions right so it, yeah. it's certainly it's your life it's your business so let's let's talk about how you you met Rob um, who's your US creative director correct yeah yeah interesting I was doing a lot of business in Dallas uh, with a client uh, McAfee who was an anti antivirus client at the time they do security solutions and it was years and years ago. This is probably like 15, 16 years ago. And uh, so I was every kind of week or so, no, sorry, that's 
bit too frequent. Every month or so, I was traveling to Dallas to to shoot video and to do things for them. And it got crazy. It was getting to the point where my you know home life and family life was suffering. I was into a new relationship at the time, and it was all very stressful. And I, I realized in the back of my mind that I needed somebody on the ground in Dallas that could kind of just take meetings for me at least or gather information or, you know, I didn't, I wasn't expecting somebody to take over the filmmaking in, certainly not immediately, but I needed somebody who understood the business. And then I, uh, one, one, one weekend in Dallas, I was at a comedy club uh, watching an improv comedy show. Uh, I think they were called middle management at the time. And they got me up on stage, asked me a few questions and did the musical of my life which was hilarious. And afterwards, I met them all at the bar and I, I bought them drinks saying, thank you, that was amazing. I talked about what I did and um, uh, this fantastically talented comedy actress, Kristen McCollum, just happened to mention, she said, my husband is a filmmaker. You, you guys should meet. You, you, you know, and I thought, this might be it. This might be the thing I'm looking for. And the following day, I went around to their house, had lunch, and we were like two kids showing each other their toys. It was ridiculous. <laughs> we were Oh, you know, oh, and I, did, did you see this video? And did you see that thing? And it was all, you know, showing each other our clips and our short films. And we were just geeking out like two, two kids who were seven years old. Um, and I nearly missed my flight that day. I, I got on so well with Rob. And I thought, well, this relationship will develop and we can, you know, train him up and um, maybe, you know, or maybe I can expose him to the kind of work that we do and understand how that business works. Um, and no, we had a phone call from a local client who said, I need something in a month, four weeks to, to shoot three commercials. And I said, Rob, you're up. That's it. This is the hit, hit the ground running induction, buddy. And uh, through that job that we did together, that was a kind of the, the baptism of fire that we, we just realized that we worked well together. We got the, the project across the line. And to this day is one of the most successful things we've ever made. And, um, and that was it. We were off and running. So that's how I met Rob through his wife, actually. And we always joke that, um, you know, I've known her a day longer than I've known him. I love that. I, and, and that answers or it segues into the next question I had for you was because you, you do have a team working with you. And, 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 and how do you, one of the complaints I've heard from, from particularly, um, it, uh, well, I've got a couple of friends who are in, in the film industry, uh, have been around uh, how do you find good quality people to work with um, and how do how do you keep them wow it's hard um i mean mine are all chained up so i don't have a problem <laughs> that's it <laughs> in a basement you know um no um wow that's a great question because it's so hard um recruitment is the worst part of my job i hate it and one, and, and the, the only big bit of advice I can give you is instead of looking for somebody that will do as they're told, look for somebody who you think could one day run their own business. Because what I, I'm not a manager. I'm the world's worst manager. My team will be the first to say so. And I forgive them for it because they're right. You know, I, I, I don't mind being a leader, but I'm just not a manager. So I need people who will manage themselves who are motivated themselves to look around and go, what needs doing? I'm going to prioritize that because it looks like that's a problem that needs solving. I need people like that around me. And so you have to develop ways of finding those people who are self-motivated and will solve problems for you. There are two types of employee in the same way that there are two types of clients, those that bring pain and those that take pain away. That's it. And I've had both. 
I've had a lot of pain with employees, an awful lot of pain, but I've found the best team ever now. I really have an incredible team. This is definitely the golden years of Twist and Shout right now. I'm so proud and happy to to have them on board. Amazing, amazing. Um, And I'm I'm with you on that. I think, you know, you have an internal barometer and I think the, the, the underlying message there is you need to understand what your own weaknesses are uh, and and you you know outright just said I'm not a great manager and, and and you know you own that and then you say okay well then I need people who can manage themselves um, and, and and that's you know and you go from there so that's that's a fantastic tip. All right, so we're, we're sort of hitting the, the, the end of, the, of of this time with us. Um, I'd love to ask you a million more questions, but I won't. <laughs> uh, we might have to do another episode. It's been a real pleasure. Uh, it's, it's been, been great. It's fun. been great. Um, so. Tell us a bit more about Twist and Shout and, and, and really what differentiates you from, from other agencies uh, in what you do. Yeah, I think it has to be the specialty in comedy. Uh, we've been finding that fine line between hilarious and litigious <laughs> for about 15 years now. And we know, we, we really do understand the tech sector. So our specialty is what has, has uh, helped us grow. And we've probably made something upwards of 200 comedies so far for, for big businesses all over the world. People like Warner Brothers and Sony, uh, Barclays Bank, and you know, big names. And so the, the, the whole thing with Twist and Shout is our specialism is that we find the specific comedy that will make the client's customers laugh. So the client's customers understand that their, their supplier gets them. If you made a joke about it, then you obviously get this industry. You are, you are trusted advisors. And we can elevate a client to that trusted advisor status really quickly and with real uh, vivid memory by making a three-minute viral commercial. And so and because we specialize in the business-to-business sector, that, that means that there's not a lot of that happening at the moment. There's yeah. just noise. Yeah, and you do. I mean, there is so much. You talked about social media uh, a couple of times in this conversation and, and the problem with social media is just there's so much out there, so much content and everyone's consuming everything and it's like, well, how do you stand out? How do I even get noticed, let alone connected to? And the joke is to make, in stand-up comedy, I sometimes do a joke where I say, you know, any fool can make the whole room laugh. I'm going to make that lady in the third row in the red coat laugh now and she will. And, and it's about being specific. Um, uh, you know, make it connect with you. It's like the best man's speech. You know, the reason the best man's speech is hilarious is because you kind of know the people he's talking about. You totally inhabit the world that he's describing. And that's why it's funny. Oh, if you set that speech up in a comedy club, it's going to die on its ass. Seriously, and, but because it's in a room full of people who love you and get you, it's hilarious. And it makes you cry and it's emotional and it's brilliant. Because it's specific comedy wrapped around that world, and that's what we do. We look into a world and we write comedy absolutely tailored around that world, and that's our that's our unique selling proposition. And I think that's that's why we succeed. Love it. So, how can people uh, listening to this get in touch with you, Jim? They can uh, contact me uh, via the book Three Guys Walk Into a Bar. That's www.threeguysbook.com. Uh, the business is on www.twistandshout.com co.uk that's .co.uk oh the twist and shout has an a and d in the middle not not an ampersand and they can so they can get into me through those i have two blogs running for both businesses um and uh yeah uh reach out and if you have any ideas especially about 
comedy and business about whether it's appropriate or if you need any advice on what to do, then just reach out and get in touch. And I'm always really happy to come and talk to groups, um, especially in um, you know the UK or for that matter in Texas. How do you find your <laughs> um, your talent for these videos that you put together? Oh, we cast, we run castings, but uh, to be honest, we also get to know, we've got to know a fantastic community of actors in London and in Dallas. Um, I'm so lucky and blessed to have a roster of, of talent that we just, you see this time and time again with directors, they keep using the same actors because they just have a great that's relationship. That's what it's all about. They get the best out of each other. Um, final, oh, well, second last question, I've got two more questions for you. Why three guys walk into a bar? Ah, oh, right, okay, I'll do this really quickly. Okay, so Three Guys Walk Into a Bar is a structure to remember the three types of freelance creative you could be. Uh, most people start out as a guy. That's just a person who fulfills a role. Like if I need a photographer to take a picture that's sharp and, and you know, well exposed, well, the camera looks after that. So I just need a guy to operate that. And I, I'm, you know, your qualification is, are you available and are you the going rate? I don't have a lot of money, so I'm just going to pay for a guy. The next level up is that guy. Because I'm buying a creative service, recommendation matters a lot. I'm scared of making a mistake as a client. So what I want is that guy that was recommended. Who was the guy? Who was that guy that did those pictures that we saw on that magazine cover? Who was that guy that did those amazing portraits for you, for being an actor or whatever it might be? That, that guy comes with a recommendation, which means he can put his prices up a little bit and he can control his time a little better. And then the final guy is, the guy are you the only guy in the world that can fulfill this creative need right now and that's where you're aiming for because then you have complete control over your pricing and your diary and you can say you know and i'll give you a great example and this is where the specialty comes in, in important you know if you get somebody coming in who is a, a real specialist and has been recommended and they're doing new and innovative things that nobody else is really doing then and you need that then you'll find the money because they're solving a real problem for you that nobody else can solve certainly not maybe in that geograph geographic location maybe not in that time frame but they absolutely can help you right now with a specific project and that relationship has real value and that's the guy so it's a transition from a guy to that guy to the guy and that's why it's called three guys now you're gonna need to do a a a, a women's version of the book Ah, you see, at the, at the beginning of the book, you'll notice there's a disclaimer. <laughs> By guys, I, of course, mean everyone. The popular and largely accepted usage of the term, I hope, is understood in the vernacular. You guys is leveled at a coffee shop with men, and Asians, old people, and people with disabilities. And everyone knows yes. it means them. Love it. Fantastic. Final question, Jim. Uh, you've, been, you've been in the career for 25 years, or at least certainly in this business. Um, and uh, when it's all said and done, what do you want to be remembered for? Wow. Um, you know what? I'd like to be remembered for being able to pass on 25 years of experience in a creative industry. The world needs creatives more than ever. Creatives can solve the big problems with a leap. Um, you know, some people just solve little problems incrementally better day after day, but creatives can look at the world completely differently. And if I can be remembered for being somebody who contributed to that community, whether it's with the book or whether I give a presentation that somebody saw, then I want to be remembered for that. You're well on your way, young man. I love Thank it. You, sir. Okay, Jim, thanks a lot for your time. Uh, everyone else, head along to Jim's website, Three Guys. 
book.com. Uh, and then, yep, and then you've got twistandshout.co.uk. I'll add those links in the show notes. Um, and make sure you, you definitely check out Jim's blogs as well. Um, and check out the videos. They're just hilarious. Um, and then do share those. Uh, and then um, if you're listening to this podcast, hit subscribe. And uh, we'll, ch- we'll tune in next time. Thanks a lot, Jim. You've been awesome. Thanks, Anthony. Much appreciated. Cheers now. Bye-bye.